Mark chapter 8. Okay, if you've got that, here we go. During those days, and uh, just to sort of indicate what were those days. Well, those days were the days when he was... Uh, Jesus was outside of Galilee, he was outside of the sort of the Jewish area, he was into the, the mixed race area at least, but certainly an area that wasn't thought to be Jewish. During those days, another large crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people, they've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. And his disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he'd taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. And having sent them away, he got into the boat with the disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply and said, why does this present generation ask for a sign? I tell, truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we've got no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember... When I brought the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they replied. When I brought the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? <sighs> do you remember the film Groundhog Day? No, you should watch it again. Um, <laughs> it's a film about um, something, that, a sort of a day that's repeated and repeated and repeated. Well, if you have followed any of the gospel and you're aware of this, if you flick back just one chapter to chapter six, you have the feeding of the 5,000. Okay. And here, a chapter, just sort of a chapter later, you've got the feeding of the 4,000. The accounts are so similar that some people have suggested that it's the same incident that Mark just puts in two different places. Or it's the two incidents, but Mark doesn't realize. Essentially, what people have suggested is it's so similar, it's quite odd that essentially Mark mustn't have been a very good writer. I think Mark's much more careful than that. But you can't get away from the fact that these two accounts are almost, almost identical. 
And um, I haven't got time to read both and go through with them, but if you want to, you can. But just both of them begin with large crowds coming to Jesus. Jesus, in both situations, is said he has compassion on them. They are in a remote place in both places. In both places, the disciples are, they come to Jesus and say, we've got a problem. And in both cases, Jesus asks them, how many loaves do you have? And in both cases, he takes the bread, uh, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it, distributes it. In both cases, there are leftovers. There's 5,000 fed in one and 4,000 fed in another. And then in both, they get in a boat and they leave. It's too similar to be coincidental. Okay. And I think two things are going on here. I think Jesus does do two different miracles with two different groups of people around the same theme. In other words, he feeds them twice. But I think Mark, as a writer, wants you to get it so clearly that you and I are left with the same questions the disciples have. Okay. You're supposed to go, this is a little strange, is it not? That we've got two stories that are almost identical that Mark tells twice in such a short period of time. Two things that might be about one thing. It's almost like that sense of deja vu. Particularly when you realize that the next story, which we'll look at next week, is the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida and in order that I don't steal everybody's thunder for next week, just enough to say that the story itself is about a blind man who Jesus heals, but Jesus has to touch him twice so that he can really see clearly. It's the only time when Jesus kind of doesn't seem to, um, his miracle doesn't seem to happen immediately. It's sort of like he, he, he heals him and then he says, what can you see now? And he says, oh, I can see people, but they look like trees. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, that's, that's not right. And um, so he, he does it again, and then he can see them properly. And then the next story that we're going to come up to is, who do you think Jesus is? And Peter's going to say, you're the Messiah. And after that, they're going to misunderstand everything. So Mark is actually positioning this in a context that's taking you through the big question. And the question that's being asked all the time through the gospel is, who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? And can you see what's going on? So Jesus feeds the 4,000. And he does it pretty much in exactly the same way as the feeding of the 5,000. Let me pause. Does that make sense? What I've just said. Some of you are going, no, I wasn't listening. Um, but does it, <laughs> does it largely make sense? Okay. Are there any questions at this point before we go to the next bit of this? Or any comments? But it, it just, it's just obvious, isn't it? But it, it kind of hopefully makes sense. So the next thing that happens after the, after the miracle is, in verse 11, the Pharisees come and began, begin to question Jesus. And then Mark uses the phrase, to test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. 
What are the Pharisees asking for? Well, remember who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees are the ruling authorities in uh, Israel. And their big concern is that they want God to do a work in their nation. But they think the way that the nation, uh, the nation will be literally saved is if people go back to the law and the Torah law. They go back to the Old Testament law and really get holy. So they're always struggling with Jesus because Jesus doesn't quite fit. So Jesus keeps going to parties with people that he shouldn't be hanging around with. Tax collectors who work for the enemy. Prostitutes who just bring the tone of the neighborhood down. The enemy. The Gentiles. And, and Jesus doesn't seem to play the game with the Pharisees. So the Pharisees have really struggled with Jesus all the way through. Because Jesus seems to be not playing the game of, this is how God's going to restore our nation. And here they come and they say, we want to question you, Jesus, about what you're doing. And we want a sign from heaven. Now up till now... Jesus has been, particularly in the early chapters, Jesus has been trying to win the Pharisees. So way back in, when, in the first chapter, when Jesus heals a man of leprosy, he says to him, go and show yourself to the priests to demonstrate what's going on. When that man who's paralyzed is brought through the broken roof of the house in chapter 2, Jesus says, I'm going to forgive you your sins, but in order that you can see my authority, get up and walk. In uh, the next part of chapter 2, he explains what he's doing and why he's here. And then in the, the latter part of chapter 2, when they are arguing, they say, you must be doing this by evil forces. He tries to explain who he is and where he's come from. And all the time, the Pharisees have closed down their willingness to listen. And here they're saying, okay, Jesus, could you do something that's essentially, could you write in the sky a sign from heaven? Can you do something that is so dramatically obvious? And then we might believe. And Jesus' response was, he sighs deeply. And that's kind of like a, um, it's a really strong groaning groaning sign. He sighs and he says, why? Why do you keep asking for a sign? I'm telling you, no more. And, and what he's saying to the Pharisees is, essentially, and this is the picture, essentially you have put your, eyes, your hands over your own eyes. You refuse to see. And he says, that's it. I'm off. He gets in the boat. And he goes, and then you get the comedy piece. And it really is. So Jesus gets in the boat, and the disciples, Mark tells us, verse 14, have forgotten to bring bread. Now just think about that for a moment. They fed 9,000 people. They've had 12 basketfuls and 7 basketfuls left over. But you know what? These 12 blokes have forgotten the bread. It's like... Who didn't bring the bread? And um, except for one loaf of bread that was in the boat with them. And I think what Mark's doing is sort of going, it's like a wink. 
It's like, so who might the bread be? Well, if you've got ears to hear, you might actually be able to hear what Mark's just sort of winking at you. But essentially, you've got 12 men going, well, I didn't think I was in charge of sandwiches today. I thought it was your turn. And everybody's going, well, I, I, I did it last time. It's not my turn. It's not my fault. And you've got 12 men plus Jesus in the boat arguing about, well, what are we going to have for lunch? I know we just fed 4,000. But right now, what are we going to do? And so Jesus hears this and he interjects and says, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and, and, uh, and of Herod. And the disciples discuss it together and come up with the, because they don't understand what he's on about, come up with the only solution they can come up with, which is he must be saying this because we've got no bread. <laughs> it's the only reason he could be talking about yeast right now. It's kind of like, what's going on in this boat? Essentially, it's 12 people plus Jesus completely confused as to what's happening. So why does Jesus say the bit about the yeast? And why does he lump together the Pharisees and Herod? Now, I am now, I'm just about to cross the boundary of my own personal knowledge. All right, in anything I say next. So I'll just give you due warning. This is what I understand yeast to be about. <laughs> All right. This is my, this is, I am on the boundary now of knowledge. And um, if you know I'm wrong, can you please not say anything publicly? Um, and even, to be honest, I don't even want to know privately. Um, but but this, is, this is the boundary of my knowledge. What was going on was they would bake, uh, they would prepare the dough to make one batch of bread. And then they would take a little bit of this dough and pop that to one side and keep adding fruit juice to this dough over a week so that this dough that is now fermented would become the fermenting agent for the next batch of dough that would be used the week after. Does that sound at all plausible? <laughs> yeah? Yeah, if anybody doesn't know, I'm absolutely right. If you do know, it's just a sort of like, but that's what I understand was going on. So in other words, they have, and I, I've seen this, you do do this, don't you? Sourdough is... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, amateurs call it mother dough, but I, you know, for <laughs> professionals wouldn't talk of it like that. But yes, you, I think essentially you're right. All right. But essentially, it's the same idea that you have this sort of, and and that then sort of passes through, all the way through. And um, so, what's Jesus going on about this dough yeast problem for? Well, it's essentially because actually they're unwillingness to believe, their unwillingness to follow the way of Jesus, their unwillingness to say, actually, if God's going to break through for us, he's going to do it this way, their unwillingness to see it in the, through the eyes of Jesus meant that they were affecting, they became toxic. That's why Jesus uses that metaphor of yeast. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, look, folks, there are alternative ways of actually imagining how God's going to bless the nation. And the Pharisees will go through the lens of retreat and piety. And Herod will go down the lens of, can we get political power? And he goes, and both of those will become toxic if you're not careful. 
one of the things we were talking about on Thursday, in Theology Thursday, and we'll circle it again this, this, this week, is when you live in a society where your convictions don't match the public convictions of the society in which you're living, how do you respond? And that was the question that Jesus is operating with here. And the Pharisees went, well, you stay completely isolated. And Herod, uh, the, the people who followed Herod said, what you do is you get so involved in society that you lose your distinctiveness. And Jesus is going, actually, there's another way. And both of those are the yeast, the mother dough, that will become toxic if you're not careful. They discuss it and go, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them in verse 17, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? And then he gives them a very specific question. And it's almost like, and I, I was trying to think of a, a, a situation that's similar, but I couldn't remember of an exact situation, but I know, particularly with children, and, and certainly when I was a child, people did it with me. It's like when people sort of go back to the basics to such an extent they say, okay, let's ask you the really simple question. And that's what Jesus is doing the 12. He said, right, I'm, I'm seeing that you're struggling to understand what's going on here. So let me go back to basics. When we fed... 5,000 people, how many baskets did you pick up? And 12 blokes go, 12. Jesus goes, excellent, well done. And when we fed 4,000 a few hours ago, guys, how many baskets did we pick up? Seven. Very good, well done. Do you still not understand? And 12 blokes go, no, not really. Not really. So what should they have understood? In other words, what have you missed as well? Because you've read these two, parable, uh, two, these two miracles, 5,000 and 4,000. Do you still not understand? Well, what was I supposed to get? Because that's the climax of this passage. Do you still not understand? And to be honest, lots of times you're going, mm, no. <laughs> so what did you miss? What should they have understood? Well, what did they see? They saw crowds being fed, Jews and Gentiles. They saw a superabundance and they saw a meal or meals. So I think what Jesus was getting at is this question. Where else have you seen food in a wilderness for a group of people and what was happening? But let's make it non-rhetorical. So the answer is manna in the desert when... We're just mumbling now, folks. <laughs> when Moses is leading a group of people from captivity to a new land. That's when you've seen this before. 
What was happening in the wilderness? A group of people were becoming a new nation. A group of individuals who'd been saved out of captivity were actually becoming a new people. That's what was actually happening in the wilderness. Now, does that help? (laughs) No, not really. (laughs) Does it help? What have you seen Jesus do? You've seen Jesus with a crowd of people. And remember that when he's feeding the 5,000, it said there were 5,000 men. All right. What's this sound like? Let me put it really bluntly. If you're just counting the 5,000 men, it's not a qualitative conversation about the value of uh, women and children. Why would you recognize 5,000 men? in a desert, outside of the city, who are now being fed remarkably by someone who's saying, actually, this is the way forward, folks. What might that look like? (laughs) Pardon? A rebellion. And if you've read John's gospel, you know that John says, because they wanted to make him king by force. So 5,000 people are going, this is our moment. And Jesus gets in the boat and escapes. He now does it with Jewish and Gentile people, non-Jewish people. What's it sound like? I'm beginning to sound like some sort of demented fool here. But what's it sound like? What's it look like? What's it look like he's doing? Anybody? He's crossing he is crossing boundaries. He is... He's, he's starting a new nation. It's all inclusive. He's doing something completely new here that's not about keeping yourself so pure that you're separated out, that's not about going down the lens of Herodian power, but actually is going in this context with these people who are coming to me because they want to hear, I want to teach them, and I have compassion for these people. I am creating a whole new nation. Do you understand? Excellent. It's another example in the New Testament of symmetry between what's going on in the Old Testament and the Exodus yes. and the inauguration of a new yeah. kingdom. Now, Mark doesn't do it in the way that Matthew does it, but let me just, to, just with that point in mind, so when Matthew puts together his block of teaching, which we would call the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember how he does it? You've heard it was said to you, in brackets, by Moses, close brackets. But I say to you, so what's he doing at that point? He's saying, well, actually, look. Moses was the father in the sense of creating this nation from captivity to a whole new group of people. But now, look, look, this is how we're going to do it now. Look at me, Jesus says. It's kind of what Jesus is doing is saying, can you see these bits of the things you've experienced? Can you see the pieces of the jigsaw? And can you put them together in such a way that 
It answers the fundamental question, who do you think Jesus is and what do you think he's doing? Now, I want to suggest there's ways of reading the gospel that make it sound as though Jesus has just come, and uh, anyway, that Jesus has just come to keep you safe. And you can read the feeding miracles by Jesus has compassion on us. That's lovely. That's really nice. And goodness knows there's lots of days when we need that. But if you only read it like that, and the rest of the time we'll just keep ourselves safe, you're missing the gospel. It's much more radical than that. So, let me suggest one other thing. So if we think about church in this bit of Salford, what's church about? Well, the purpose of church is not that you find nice people you can belong to. The purpose of church is not that you can just come and be loved. The church is, is not just cut so you can come and sing some great, uh, with some great musicians and we can sing worship songs and we can listen to a sermon, etc., etc., etc. It's that but it's not that. It's not, that's not the fundamental reason for church. Because all that looks like is a little gathered huddle of a club that lives in a certain place. You begin, you know, it's kind of like, we all need to do this outside. You need to look outside and go, so what's God wanting to do for this area? The evangelist is going, yes. <laughs> Finally, yes. <laughs> and I think that's what Jesus is doing with this feeding miracle. He's going, the danger is that you can reduce faith and you can reduce Jesus to something very manageable when actually what God is wanting to do is go, there's a bigger picture here, folks. Do you not get it? And at the risk of uh, preaching a sermon that I'll do in two weeks' time. Because when Peter says, in answer to the question, Jesus says, so who do you think I am? And Jesus say, uh, Peter says, you're the Messiah. What Jesus and Peter both meant at that point is, I am the new leader of a whole new nation that will be for the sake of the world. That's what it means to be a Messiah. So all of this is the run-up to this. Which I think is fantastic. And I think the challenge for us is this. For those of us who have been in church for years, it's too easy to make faith and church too small. Essentially, and this is sort of like an easy, easy door to knock against, really, but it's easy to make church a religious club that we all enjoy, that is a means of escape from the world in which we live. And if that ever becomes a temptation for us, we've got to say that is not what we're about at all. We want it to be a place where you're loved. We want it to be a place where you belong. We want it to be a place where we worship. We want it to be a place where you do, we do this sort of stuff. 
But this is not the end of it. This is not why it's all about. What it's about is God has a heart for his whole world. And he's asking us to join in. And the second thing is, it's a challenge to those of us who have had experiences. You've seen some of this. You've had that experience. You've understood that. And at the moment, it's all like individual jigsaw pieces. And I think that's what was going on with the disciples. They'd had all these individual jigsaw pieces. And then Jesus is going, can you put these jigsaw pieces together and can you commit yourself to this? And there comes a moment for all of us where you go, okay, all of these different pieces, today I want to put them together because today I understand who Jesus is. Today I recognize actually the lordship of Jesus. Today I say, I'm yours. And those two things about what does it mean to have faith and what does it mean to be a church and actually what does it mean to bring all these pieces together I think are reflected in the story. What are you thinking? Are you, are you, are you Colin, are you, are you looking... <laughs> <laughs> What are your thoughts? I, I think clearly there we, we can identify with the disciples because you, you had a job to draw that from us. So Jesus maybe had, he had high expectations from the disciples who, yes, I've seen it firsthand, but you pointed out something to us that now seems glaringly obvious. Ah, yes, it's like a light bulb moment, but I can, I can see why those mm. guys were... No, you know, explain. They needed more pieces of the jigsaw, didn't yeah. they? Yeah. So I think, yeah. yeah. We sometimes expect a lot from the disciples, don't we? Because they spent so much time with him, but they were just learning like we are. Yeah. I suppose the difference for them, and, and you know, it was, it, it's their own history. They kept retelling this story of the wilderness, but they still couldn't make the pieces fit. Anybody else, what are you thinking? Yeah, Pat, behind you, Ian. Just wondering if you think that this is where the Pharisees began to be so frightened of him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because they could see that he, you know, he might be planning something. Yeah. And um, against the nation. Yeah, absolutely. And their fear was that the Romans would clamp down and they'd get wiped out. Yes. Yeah. And they didn't want to risk that. Yeah. And they and, and Jesus was the threat to their own way of thinking. Yeah. Absolutely. Anybody else? What are you thinking? Just thinking, uh, why does he just leave? Why does he not explain it more? Why doesn't he go into more detail? Why does he just get on the boat and just sail away and leave it at that? What do you think the answer is? I haven't got a clue. <laughs> I really don't know. And I suppose he's, he's leaving, them, leaving them to work it out themselves. Yeah. That's all I can think of. I think that probably is the truth. I think, uh, you know, from your explanation there, uh, Neil, I mean, even at the, I was confused at, uh, at a certain point. Possibly the confusion lay in that 
that Jesus presents such a radical new concept yeah. that smashes the whole old order. Yeah. That they didn't have, you know, the capacity to grasp really what is, you know, the total aim that he was putting forward. And maybe the Pharisees had a certain insight into that radical concept that that's what yeah. possibly frightened them. Yeah. Because what you put forward disturbs me because it, yeah. because it requires a certain amount of courage yeah. to follow that concept that he, that radical concept. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think it is that is that was the the, the worrying aspect of Jesus. He he de- he was deeply deeply disturbing to people. And then, of course, he says, "Can you follow me?" And can you equally be as disturbing? <laughs> we go. I'd rather not. But you you're quite right to point it out. One last one, yeah. Um, I was just thinking about, you know, Jesus claimed he was the bread of life. And I was trying to think, well, historically, where did that fit? When did he say that in relation to this event? Mm. Um, so I quickly turned to John yeah. to have a look. And um, it does seem to follow this story that yeah. you've just shared. So he actually told them, I am the bread of yeah. life. So, yeah. you know, the, the, the same God that fed the people in the desert. Yeah is now standing in front of them, yeah. proclaiming himself to yeah. be the bread of life, and, and they still couldn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether we would or not. I was sitting here thinking, would I have got it? I don't know. <laughs> so the last question, this, this is rhetorical. So what? So what does following this Jesus mean? in the context of our lives this week. The Jesus who will cross boundaries, who, will, who did cross boundaries, who creates newness out of where people are really stuck in their own way of thinking. What does it look like for you to trust this Jesus? And what does it look like for us to actually work with the grain of this Jesus? When we sang earlier in the service, stir it up, Lord. Stir it up in our hearts. What is the it you were asking God to stir up? A passion for your name. Now that is not an experience, i.e., oh, I've got goosebumps now. Yep, stirred up. That's actually a commitment to following the way of Jesus. That's what you were singing. But it's this Jesus, the disturbing Jesus, the risk-taking Jesus, the radical Jesus, the Jesus who doesn't fit into existing religious categories, the Jesus who disturbs those of us who've got, those of us who have um, a stake in keeping things the way they are. Jesus says, no, come and follow me. And the question comes, 
Do you understand? Do you understand? We're going to pray together, and then the guys are going to come back. Thank you. Thanks for engaging with it. It makes it so much easier when you engage. (laughs) Let's pray together. I wonder if you want to stand um, as a sign of kind of a wide-eyed, open acknowledgement that actually I want to follow this Jesus. I want a passion for your name. I want a passion for the Jesus of the Gospels. I want a passion for this King. Lord, may you take your word and by your spirit, may you do that work of allowing it to settle in our own hearts and do those mini explosions of awareness and realization of what it means for us to follow King Jesus. Lord, in these days, what you are wanting to do is create a new people. A people not based on uh, color, race, um, economic ability. What you're doing is you want to create a people who reflect something of your purpose for the whole world. I want to pray for our church here. I want to pray that you'd guard us against the times when we want to make it safe and we want to make it comfortable. I want to pray, Lord, that as a church, we would know what it means to follow the King Jesus. That our arms and our hearts and our wallets would be open to the needy, to the people who get left behind. I pray our hearts and our minds would be open to those who do have power, the privileged, and Lord, they would see the joy of following Jesus. Lord, make us good news in our homes. Make us good news in our neighborhoods. Lord, I pray that your spirit, the spirit that blows and uh, the wind, and we don't know where it comes from, but we know the effect. Lord, may that spirit breathe into us so that we might be unexpectedly, remarkably faithful in the context we find ourselves. Do new work in as we pray. In the name of